Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, and at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses HP Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one is going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously, we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Hello and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. This episode, Sandman number seven, Sound and Fury. What do they signify? <laughs> uh, cover date of June 1989, Art Again by Mike Dragenberg and Malcolm Jones III. And we uh, finally get to wrap up some of the nastiness that we uh, saw started last issue. And uh, I think we're all happy to be done with it when it's done, but it... It kind of ends in a way that's unexpected to me. Yeah, I'm excited about this issue, even though we have really one more issue to go in the Preludes and Nocturnes volume. Uh, that issue is really a coda to the story that concludes here. And so that's very exciting. And on top of that, we get some uh, we get some really great Shakespeare, get some interesting comics lore. So we are going to have a lot to do in this episode. I think it's going to be an awful lot of fun. 
So we get a kind of cold open here that uh, shows us the effects of John Dee's use of Dream's ruby, which we did hear quite a bit about on the news in the previous issue, but we never actually saw it happening. And this time we do, and it is pretty horrid. It's not nearly as gruesome as what we saw in 24 hours, but still some pretty awful stuff. We see people committing acts of violence against children, against dogs, and even burning the patients in a geriatric ward. We also see a plane crash. We see fundamentalist Christians weeping because they've been abandoned by God. And we see a dispatcher despondent because there are no more ambulances to send out. And we don't, we don't often read whole passages of Gaiman's prose on this show, at least not so far. But I think that this cold open, this, this section here, I think it really deserves it. So I'm just going to read a little bit of this. Listen, you can hear sobbing on the freeway. Helpless weeping comes from the crash sculpture of twisted, blistered metal, burning rubber, shattered glass. Listen to the anguish of a world in which the bad things are coming out of the dark places. Listen to a world in pain. Listen, you can hear it. And, and that's just some some chilling stuff. And, and gaming here does an awesome job of really showing us what's at stake in the upcoming showdown between John D and Dream. And also, I think it's a great preview of prose works to come on this show. And it's a great reminder of how terrible the stakes are that, you know, we spent a lot of time up close and personal with the folks in the diner and the tragic fate that occurred to all of them. Uh, we had bits from the newscast from the television last time telling us that this it was st- spreading statewide and then even uh, worldwide. Uh, but here we very much have these snippets and it, it doesn't really tell you where things are occurring all that much. There's a mention of um, the streets of New York having the fundamentalists who are upset. But other than that, there's no actual geographic location given. But you almost can imagine these things occurring everywhere around the world and that they're not at all particularly unique to any location. This is terrible things are happening as a result of what Dr. Destiny, uh, John D has done. And they're all very disturbing to me. Um, a couple that really affected me the most Glenn, and I, I kind of want to call them out on the first page. You mentioned there was the, uh, a nurse who had lit the geriatric ward on fire. Uh, what's disturbing to me about this image is her laughing and that she has a gasoline can next to her. And it's the kind of gasoline can that, you know, it could be that it was somewhere in the hospital for like a backup generator or something. But I actually imagined it initially. I thought like, wait, she had to like leave the hospital, go get a can of gas, bring it back and then douse things and then set a fire. The level of like premeditation and action that is necessary for her to do this. This isn't just a like quick whim of a thought like this this required a lot of effort for her to do this terrible thing that's a really great catch i had not noticed that and yeah i mean it's not just right that people are going crazy in their immediate environs with the the things that are around them it's that she's perhaps enacting her worst impulses the the and i think think we're going to get some hints about that in the the text as we as we go but i had not noticed that that's a great catch the second page, as you mentioned, there's the freeway where uh, an airplane has crashed, and that is terrible, but there's not a person there, so it doesn't grab us quite the same way, I think. And then when they cut to the fundamentalists who are weeping, on the one hand, that is tragic. On the other hand, it might also strike you as comical if you are the kind to usually find fundamentalism to be funny. So it, it struck me in a very different way, which I think may have been necessary, though, to get to the bit at the end where, as you mentioned, Nan Fowler knows she has no more ambulances to send and the calls just won't stop coming in. And there's this this woman holding her hand, holding her head and just crying at a 911 dispatch. And I think that kind of the slight release of tension of the fundamentalists to then really ratchet up my level of empathy here for this poor Nan Fowler, who is not someone who is behaving in a crazy way and and causing violence to those around her, nor trapped, but, or, you know, uh, you know, having their existential worldview completely rocked so much as like, here's a person trying to do their job, knowing that on the other end is someone who needs help and then having 
no other help that can be sent and just the powerlessness of that. And yet being stuck there at the desk to keep answering the calls. And I think that that really affected me far more than a lot of the other uh, stuff, partially because of the wonderful um, art we have here, but also Neil's writing and just the pacing of these two pages. Well, the, the helplessness of not being able to help others when that's your entire job, like your your purpose in life and presumably something of your identity as well. I, I mean, that's that's powerful stuff, right? I mean, that is feeling forsaken by God, I suppose, uh, in some sense, which is, I think, the sort of two parallels there between the uh, the, the people who are uh, the people who are actively weeping on the page. And again, it's everyone's worst nightmare, right? And one of the things I like about this art and about the writing more so is, you know, we've seen like when John Constantine is with Dream in the past, and there's other cases where we see, and we'll see them more as we go, and some of them will be favorite characters, we'll see manifestations of nightmares actually acting in other worlds as well as on our world. And here we see terrible things happening, but these are things that are all seemingly caused by humans themselves. It's humans who are being twisted, but it's not that there's some metaphysical thing that is, you know, interrupting things. There isn't a supervillain here. I mean, I guess there is in some ways who's twisting people to do things, but we don't have like someone running around and causing the harm who's an outside force so much as someone who is able to twist the inside of us to do terrible things. Yeah, that's another great catch because we that might actually just be an indication of what the ruby is and what its domain is, what type of power dream has infused it with and what it can do versus when we have actually seen nightmares sentient in some way in the episode with, with Constantine and that was the result of the the pouch or the, the really we should say the sand inside of the the pouch and maybe that's how they're created and and controlled and and the ruby has nothing to do with that and then we cut to um our first panel where we actually see our pro- protagonist and antagonist standing uh, well one sitting the other one standing across from him and here dream is asking what do you think you're doing not with any particular excitement here, no overuse of exclamation points, just real actual confusion, I think, while we have Dr. Destiny in a very creepy way, kind of staring up at him and kind of smiling. And it's it's a very disturbing image. And I think it further adds to here we're, we're able to sympathize with Dream where why is he doing this? This is terrible stuff. And, and this is happening on our, our title page, which I think is quite dramatic because we get really it's a it's a black page with this single illustration inset, which is then surrounded by the title sound and and fury. It, it's extremely dramatic and it would also be an amazing poster, I think, if we were having to pick a panel uh, to be the best wall art. And maybe we will do that in our wrap up episode. <laughs> uh, so far, probably this is the one that I would want. And of course, we have in Sound and Fury again, some Shakespeare creeping in. So from Macbeth. Yeah, we're going to get uh, we're going to get quite a big dose of Shakespeare in this episode, in fact. And, you know, as we flip the the, the page, we get an answer from D about why he's doing this. And he explains that he's hurting the the people, driving them mad, dredging up the blackness from their souls. And I'm absolutely fascinated by the metaphysical implications of what D says here, because the the ruby has power over dreams. And maybe this is really just more about what's going on with the ruby, but the, the ruby has power over dreams. But in this speculative world, and, and I guess really we saw this last time as well in some gruesome detail, that clearly seems to include people's subconsciousnesses, or I don't know, maybe it's better to say that it includes anything they've ever daydreamed or fantasized or imagined. So it's not just sleeping dreams, which we've encountered already, but we just keep getting that reinforced here, which I think is quite good world building. Yeah, no, I think it's very good world building. And then we get some more explanation from Dream about um, including a visual of when he crafted the ruby that he created from the fabric of his own being. And we get a shot of him kind of pulling the ruby kind of out of his chest, it looks like. And in the Annotated Sandman by Leslie Klinger, uh, there's a note from the script that Neil Gaiman had uh, originally had for the comic in which he noted that Dream should look 
all white here, as opposed to what we have now, where he is off frequently in the black coat and has the black hair and stuff. And I think that's something for us to keep in mind down the line in terms of a younger dream should look more white. And this issue actually, I think, plays with black and white quite a bit. I mean, I just pointed out that the, the title page has that black surrounding it but there are a lot of pages that actually just have that black and we're going to get some stark white on the page as well there's some interesting visual language going on there i I actually just said that you know d's going to explain why he is doing this uh but then i actually didn't bother to to narrate that so uh, we should do that now because i think it's a really interesting element of d's character so he says that why he's doing this the reason he's doing this to people is is uh, that he, well, one, he doesn't really know, but that at first he did this just so that he could make it stop because then he would really be able to hold the world hostage and be the ruler of us all uh, because he's, you know, holding a thermal detonator, I guess. But now he's just having fun tormenting people and he doesn't want to stop. And this does not seem an especially reasonable approach to anything uh, to me, but Dream here does try to reason with him, right? That's the, the the approach that Dream takes, the first tactic he takes. And I guess that he has to do this, right? Because as we saw two issues ago, he can't really engage with the Ruby anymore because of what D has done to it. So Dream here tries to convince D to undo whatever that was and to give it back. And in the process, that's where we get this explanation of, of what the Ruby is. And that's really going to be the crux of the story, which is great. Yeah. And I mean, as you noted, he's kind of powerless to just take the Ruby. And so him trying to reason with D is all that he has, but it also says a lot about dream as a character. We, we've seen him be very aloof and, and here we see him sit down in the booth and stop standing and hovering over him and trying to just look menacing or tough. This might be some of the most he's ever spoken to someone, except for when playing a game of riddles in hell in which he's probably being honest and it's all word balloons. It's not any like interior monologue thoughts. It's all him ex- explaining, no, no, this is what we should do. But I think it's also that he may have so little understanding of how to deal with someone who is so kind of emotively mad that he's got to try rationalizing with him, but also he may not understand how useless that is at this point. And of course, you know, we need to keep in mind that it's it's not actually been that long since he escaped his prison. We don't really actually get a sense of how long it has been as far as I can tell, but it's been a matter of weeks, right? It's not like a matter even of months. So his understanding of the world of humans, right, has got to be extremely limited at this point. Um, and I think what we'll see in the comic as we go forward is also the limitations that Dream has to fully be able to empathize with humans or other kind of mortal creatures he he very much is a being who understands certain rules but sometimes doesn't understand personal preferences and and how other things might collide with that and he's not necessarily good about understanding others all right well so dream tries to convince d to stop being a madman d is not interested in that. And now that he knows that Dream's soul is the fire in the heart of his jewel, as he describes it, a great phrase, he's just going to kill Dream. But Dream is not having this. He he pulls his helmet out of a, a secret pocket inside his coat that is clearly bigger on the inside. And, and you were speculating about this just a few episodes ago, Brent. And he says he won't fight D in this world, but only in the Dream world. And so... Dream goes to the dream world. Uh, I, I don't think we're calling it the dreaming yet, though that can't be too far off in the future here. And D has to use the ruby to follow him, but only after addressing it in a way that would even make Gollum uncomfortable. It's creepy stuff. Yeah, it, it really is. Gaming gives us a little pause here in the action, kind of delaying us getting to the the culmination, the real climax of the story. So we get an interlude here where we see some more people succumbing to the power of the ruby. Uh, this is doing things like carving themselves, uh, burning out people's eyes with oven cleaner, and decapitating dogs and, and, and carving uh 
into their their heads. Uh, again, gruesome stuff, but it is an interesting reminder of what's at stake. We're going to see some other interruptions like this as the, the battle gets going. But when Dee arrives in the dream world, he enters into a production of Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar with D playing the title role, though, as we'll we'll see what he's really entered into is a kind of dream mashup of Julius Caesar and Macbeth. And I love this. I think this is great because Julius Caesar is a play that is replete with dreams. I, I think there are actually more lines about dreams than in A Midsummer Night's Dream, though I can't wait to get to Gaiman's adaptation of that as well. It's probably my favorite single issue of, of Sandman. And what I love about this is it opens with him kind of stepping through what it could be that he's coming on stage from a dark side. So it's like he's pushing aside a curtain, or it could be as if he's opening a wardrobe and walking in. It, it kind of reminded me of Narnia in that sense. But uh, but he doesn't look at all like D. Like, it's very obvious to us, partially because he's still wearing the ruby, that this is D. But he looks like he's supposed to be Julius Caesar at this point, I believe. Yeah, it's an interesting visual here because it does look half like it is a dream that perhaps many of us have had of suddenly finding ourselves in a play that we have never rehearsed for and haven't memorized the lines, but then also half like he actually has stepped into the role of Julius Caesar, which I don't know, that might be another common nightmare that people have. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but it is the art is really quite, quite striking here. It's, it's a really interesting way of, of depicting this. And I love what Gaiman does with the, the dialogue here as well. What, what we have here is something very much like Act 2, Scene 2 of Julius Caesar, in which there are rival interpretations of a dream and Caesar chooses the wrong one and later dies for it. And in the play, the dream is not actually Caesar's dream, but it's it's his wife's dream, his wife Calpurnia. Uh, I'm going to read it before we learn what Dee's dream is. And, and I'm excited about this because this marks the first time that we've read any Shakespeare on this show, though it is something that happens all the time on our other shows, mostly on Lower Decks, our Star Trek show, because Star Trek loves Shakespeare more than it loves anything else in the whole universe, I think. But um, all right, let me read the, the text of, uh, of one of Calpurnia's dreams from Act 2, Scene 2. She dreamt tonight she saw my statue, which, like a fountain with a hundred spouts, did run pure blood. And many lusty Romans came smiling and did bathe their hands in it. That's a, a pretty intense image. Certainly doesn't sound good. But Calpurnia is pretty clear that this means that Caesar is going to be murdered by being stabbed a whole bunch if he goes to his scheduled meeting. And as we all know, she's right. But Caesar wants to go to his meeting. So he asks for another interpretation and he gets one. And it's actually from one of the conspirators who is trying to get him to come out of his house. And, and that interpretation is this. It was a vision, fair and fortunate. Your statue sprouting blood in many pipes in which so many smiling Romans bathed signifies that from you, great Rome shall suck reviving blood and that great men shall press for tinctures, stains, relics, and cognizance. And this misreading of the dream, willful misreading of the dream, is precisely what is happening in this scene, too, with D. D says that he has had a dream that he was raping his mother, and he asks for it to be interpreted. And he asks the soothsayer, by the way, which is a character in the play, though not in the scene I've just been reading from. And here, the soothsayer says that D's horrific dream, I mean, it is really quite a disturbing dream, uh, that this dream means that he will rule the world, which is our universal mother, right? So in the first instance, in the actual Shakespeare, it's, you know, sprouting out blood is totally fine. It's a definitely a good thing. And here is the same trick is done with the uh, dream of, of, of de raping his mother, right? Something that's clearly not a good thing that you have to be sort of willfully misunderstanding that you have to be uh, actively choosing something that you know, can't possibly be right. And it's interesting parallel here. And, you know, I want to, and, and thinking about what D is doing here with sort of picking and choosing his interpretation, we actually have already seen him do exactly this or something exactly like it anyway, before regarding his fortune in 24 hours. And, and I guess that's another connection here with, with elements already presented in this story. And here in one of the images, we have uh, a signed photo from D's mother, Ethel, to Roddy, which is likely Roderick Burgess. With her love from 1927. And Leslie Klinger notes that this might be evidence that uh, Dee's father actually was Roderick Burgess. But that's never explicitly uh, stated anywhere. Oh, that's fantastic. I, that, ha that thought had not occurred to me. 
though that would be, I mean, that would explain a lot about him, I suppose, right? I mean, I don't think we quite know sort of how magic ability is is developed or passed on, if it can be biologically inherited in some way. But that might explain his sort of ability to really interact with this ruby in ways that we've not seen other people who possessed it be able to do. Also, if there's, you know, some strain of mental illness that is hereditary for him, then wanting to become like some kind of a god and usurp the power um, the way that Roderick Burgess would certainly is what he's doing. Yeah, that's a fantastic catch. There's one more thing in this scene or on, on this page that uh, I think we should we should mention, which is just yet another connection to things that we've seen before in this story, which is that the, the soothsayer character here is not a single person. It is, in fact, three women who are telling his fortune and interpreting his dreams. We That is what we saw back in 24 Hours as well. But of course, this is the three fates who we've encountered re- really repeatedly already in just this first story and who are going to come back. I don't think I had quite noticed that image on, on previous reads of this, so I was excited to see that. Well, it's fun here, because artistically, the the three fates are depicted here kind of as uniform kabuki dancer look to me, versus what we've seen before, which is more kind of Halloween trope fair of very westernized view, but this is uh, they have a slightly different look bent to them, so it it, 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 it it makes me wonder again, is this the fates who are also partially involved in the dreamlands or is this just the way that his dreams are kludged together uh, or the way that the dreamlands are reacting to him? It's not entirely clear as we'll see how much control he has versus what the dream lord is providing him versus what the dream lands themselves, um, not yet named the dreaming, is kind of doing because some of it's just strange dream logic. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the thing with the fates, certainly in ancient Greek religion and other religions that have these types of characters, I mean, the deal is that they are subject to no one and everyone is subject to them. And I guess the question that we might have right now at this point in this story, trying to understand the world that that Gaiman is constructing here is a question of whether or not the endless are going to be subject to the fates, or if by virtue of being endless, they stand outside of that. It will be fun to see which which it is. One more thing I do want to say about these women is that, of course, you know, we've we've talked in a previous episode about the idea of the three fates as three witches. Uh, that's central to Shakespeare's other play, Macbeth. And as this scene progresses, we get a line from Macbeth spoken by these characters. And it is also the title of this issue. And so we will talk more about that uh, when we do our title discussion at the end of the episode. And they warned him about the, instead of the Ides of March, the Ideas of March which then he tries to restate as the March of Ideas. Um, and then they yell out, well, they just state, I guess there's no explanation in this uh, last time, beware the brides of Frankenstein. And they, they become the bride of Frankenstein with twisted visages and the great kind of big hair with the white lightning bolt streak in it. And here then we see him grab his ruby and say, no, stay back, go away. And then power clearly comes out from it and then he's left alone in a white plane so here we see perhaps for the first time him manifesting some power over the dreamlands or the dreaming with the ruby yeah and he realizes here that he's not powerless in the dreaming and and he he's been pretty confused by this dream and sort of finding himself here but at this point then he remembers his mission kill dream and what he says is i'm here to kill you dream lord to take this kingdom as my own and of course that is the exact plot of macbeth so the parallels keep coming here and deed chases dream through some kind of urban dreamscape i guess and and starts monologuing like a classic villain he calls dream a (laughs) a stinkered lord of piss and mire and a ragshag lord of nowhere at all and just generally taunts him while using the the ruby as a kind of laser gun to take apart the dream world uh we've already been taking some some lines some insults from this this story and and this is another one that i'm going to take both of these stinkered lord of piss and mire though i think is the one i'm going to really start calling people that's good but i mean swine scum works if you're in a hurry yeah, it's not bad. That's right. Well, here we get a, another check-in with people being affected by what is happening in the dream world. The the sleeping all over the world scream and whimper and moan. 
And we meet a woman named Eve who who stares out from her cave at the erupting dreamscape while her raven caws unkindly at the havoc. And I think we have seen this person before, right? We have seen both Eve and her raven very briefly earlier in uh, this collection, and we'll see a lot more of them later to come. We also see hiding under a bed, um, and I love this visual because it's Cain and Abel and their respective gargoyles. And uh, I believe we're to get that they're hiding under a bed, and because of how big Gregory, Cain's uh, gargoyle, is, uh, he actually is holding up his side of the bed. <laughs> Yeah, it's not actually the best hiding spot, right? Like, we know there's something under the bed, but uh, I think they're going to make it out of this story uh, just fine. And uh, we also, very interestingly, we finally see Destiny on this page, who, as we have learned already, is one of the endless, like Dream. And the the line we get for him is absolutely great, so I'm just going to read it. In the garden of forking ways, Destiny finds himself, perhaps for the first time, hesitant to turn to the next page in his book. And I love Destiny. I've even recently dressed up as Destiny for Halloween in a robe with a heavy book chained to my wrist, but he is not actually an invention of Gaiman. So I'm hoping, Brett, that you can put your uh, comics historian hat on and tell us a little bit about his history. Yeah, and I had not been as familiar before doing research for this uh, show with exactly the extent of his history. I remember seeing him here or there, but... Um, I think I saw him in a couple Teen Titans comics back in the day in the uh, early 80s. But um, he was created by Marv Wolfman uh, and uh, Ben Ryu Wrightson. Marv Wolfman was the author for a lot of the Teen Titans arcs in the early and uh, late 80s that I remember fondly. So that's probably the reason why he was at play there. But he first appeared in 1972 in Weird Mystery Tales number 1, which he was a host to introduce his stories. For those of you who are not fans with comics but know your 1990s television trivia, kind of think of the Crypt Keeper, but, you know, in the form of a blind man with a book. <laughs> so less cackling and more page flipping. Uh, he was one of a number of frequent hosts of Secrets of Haunted House, and uh, apparently frequently the other hosts of Secrets of Haunted House would occasionally make fun of him, probably for being, uh, well, actually, supposedly for being drab um, and boring in some ways, um, in the letters pages uh, for those comics, because the it was in-character responses to the letters page in Secrets of Haunted House. So he then later appeared, though, as I mentioned, in some Teen Titans comics. He also appeared in a Superman comic in which uh, he intervened. He oftentimes doesn't intervene. He more introduces stories. But occasionally he'll suggest people do things, um, which we'll see play out later in the Sandman series, too, where he does put some motion things in motion, although he's not entirely sure why sometimes. But in a Superman comic, he apparently indicated that Superman should not return to Metropolis because Metropolis should not become too reliant on him to break kind of any kind of cycle of codependency there. So occasionally he does take actions, though usually I don't think there's been any instance where he physically takes action. It's more just he shows up and tells people things um, and then they can heed the advice or not. So in his own way, he actually is like the, the three witches of Shakespeare in which he can provide guidance and what you do with it is, is up to you. Though he seems like he's actively more helpful, whereas the the three witches or the three fates, certainly as we've encountered them so far here, are not especially helpful. In fact, they're kind of antagonistic. They kind of want to trick you a little bit. But it seems like Destiny actually wants to be helpful. Yeah, he seems to, I mean, on the D&D scale, he's always kind of depicted as true neutral. But I think if you want to think about the cosmos as not a terrible place, um, if you are not HP Lovecraft, then um, you want him to, even in being true neutral, be kind of, you know, not completely terrible. Um, and that it, all in all, the cosmic scales will balance out in a way that are slightly towards progress occurring versus um, regressiveness occurring. Um, and here, I believe he's kind of, there's, there's two things that Neil, I think, is doing by bringing us uh, Destiny at this point. On the one hand, he's introducing another member of the family who will come in later, because we'll discover later that uh, Destiny, uh, spoiler, is one of Dream's brothers. The other thing he's doing is he's serving, I think, as an, uh, an audience surrogate here to ratchet the tension up. That in 
this place, and even if you know nothing else, that in the Garden of Forking Ways, Destiny finds himself, perhaps for the first time, hesitant to turn the next page in his book. I mean, that just really says to you, like, look, of all the things that have ever occurred in DC continuity, this may be the first time that he's concerned about what's going to happen next. And I think that raises the stakes in a way um, more so than watching Cain, Abel, and their gargoyles hiding under a bed. The one being more comic and the other one being like, no, no, here are the stakes. But also, Destiny as an audience stand-in, like, it, it's telling us, like, yeah, you should also maybe be nervous about what happens. But then, you know, cutting to a princess bride a setting in which colombo tells us he's not gonna die <laughs> don't worry i mean that's what i needed here was colombo to like turn and, and and tell um fred savage in his bears jersey he's gonna be okay i wonder what it is that that destiny is worried about is he worried about losing his family member here about his family member dying or is he more worried about D's ability to take over the dreaming, right? Is Does this tell us something about the way that this works? I don't know if we'll ever actually find out the answer to that question, but I wonder here. Yeah, no, I wonder as well. Um, and in dream being the master of not just dreams, but occasionally referenced as we've seen before, the master of like stories as a whole and destiny's holding a book that contains like the you know, true story of what's occurring. But in some ways, is that just another storybook? And so if D were to really get power, could it be that even his book could easily be not just rewritten, but done whatever it wants with by the power of D if he's feeling like being malicious enough? And this is really the first time that I have felt like the whole universe might really be in, in dire jeopardy in in this story, right? We've, we've certainly seen that there are, uh, serious consequences to the world from dreams imprisonment and from other people having his, his tools and, and his toys. But in some ways, that's been small scale, uh, compared to, yeah, the ability to control the dreams, uh, the, the fantasies, the daydreams, the wants and desires and stories everywhere in the whole universe to really latch on to and be able to damage, I think, the fabric of reality. The idea that that's at stake here is, yeah, it is really serious. This probably is the most serious thing that has ever happened in the DC universe. And I wonder if Neil Gaiman felt he needed to do this to really ratchet up the tension because you've already seen the protagonist literally go to hell and stare down all of the legions of hell, kind of insult them and walk away freely. So at that point, you know, once you've shown that Superman can fly very, you know, as fast as he wants and you know, even spin the world back around, um, in reverse time. If you watch the right movie, like what is the challenge? And so here to say like, no, no, this really is big. And in some ways, this is more of an existential threat to all of the universe, as you said, compared to what has come before. Like this is the epic conclusion of this particular arc. Well, the good news is that Dream is actually going to win this fight. I don't think that's spoiling anything for anyone, even if they haven't read this issue. And and we should get started with with that. We should should take this episode home or this issue home. Uh, at last, Dream himself appears to confront D, but D understands that the ruby can suck power from Dream, and so he uses it to do that. And then he crushes the ruby in his hands, to destroying it. And I, I guess what I understand here is that that D thinks that. That once he has Dream's life force in the ruby, that crushing it then will actually destroy Dream's life force. But we are going to see that he is very, very wrong about that. And it's great here because after he crushes the ruby, then there's a whole page spread of D just floating, standing on one foot. It's unclear, but he existing in a, a full page of just white and him standing there. And then it's repeated, so it takes a beat for the half of the next page. And I did not know, because I've never read the original issues of these when they came out. I've only read them in the collections. But uh, the annotated Sandman, Leslie Klinger, notes that in the original comic, that whole first page image didn't exist. It was actually repeated in the collections. And in the original comic, it was just the half page of him hovering there instead of the here's him in a broad white panel and then a somewhat smaller version of the same image, which I think just 
pacing wise works well where it, it leaves you in suspense and it also kind of it helps with the climax of like he's broken the ruby and then nothing and then you're wondering like wait is this nothing like nothing nothing is this is this all there is because if this if that's all there is then let's keep dancing right and and we're wondering did he win right did he actually kill dream and i love this full page widespread i mean this would probably be my runner-up for for wall art from this first volume so far it's it's a beautiful image and even though I suppose it, it is it is the same uh, drawing of of D, uh, the the amount of white, uh, the sort of doubling the amount of white around him uh, is really haunting. It's a fantastic image. And then it cuts to D close up, and and he thinks he's done it. And I think when I remember this comic, I remembered him being unsure of himself, but he does not appear unsure of himself. He somewhat seems unsure about what to do next, maybe, but he's not unsure of. The fact that he's won, so he he rules the dream world now, and he'll hide in dreams, as he says. He'll never go back, never leave here for the real world where people hurt you, where they don't care, where they die when you still need them. And I think that this is a reference to his mother and, and how alone he does feel. And again, we've seen this character do such terrible things, particularly in some of the prologue of this issue, but also all throughout the last issue. He's just a vile person. But here to try to make us somewhat feel a little bit of sympathy for this lost, confused boy who just misses his mother who died is, I mean, I think it's a tough trick to pull off. I think it works as well as it needs to work without going so far. It doesn't forgive him in any way, but, but yet still it, I think it's kind of a necessary little step for where we end up going. Well, you you had pointed out, I think, in the issue when we first meet him, the notion that perhaps Arkham Asylum is not actually a place where people go to get better. It's a place where people go to get worse. And you know, he's just escaped from that prison. He's a, you know escaped from Arkham Asylum. And these are the actions that he has taken. And yeah, here, at least, it seems like what he was really looking for was simply safety. He's certainly gone about it in a, a vile and, and heinous way that I don't think can possibly be forgiven, right, or excused. But that does add richness to his character. And it sets up the, the choice that Dream, who is very much not dead, uh, is going to have to, to make here. So then we cut to Dream just saying, thank you, John D. And we see that John D. is relatively small, about the size of Dream's thumb, just standing in the palm of Dream's hand. And Dream's hand is, is again, mostly white and shadow on top of that. So it's almost as if the white field he was cut in was just perhaps that he was even closer and even smaller on dreams flesh and dreams just sitting there with his jeans on yeah it's a good outfit the, the dark jeans and gray t-shirt it's a it's a good look i wish i could pull it off and so then dreams explains that it's been so long that he'd forgotten how much power he had put in the ruby and it feels so good to have that power restored to him and so d is concerned about what's going to happen to himself Right. And they have a conversation here in which, uh, which dream is mulling over. You know, I could kill you, John D, but I could also not kill you. And, and he does in the end decide not to kill John D, but instead to take him home, to take him back to Arkham Asylum. And this is the most merciful that we have seen Dream be. In fact, he has treated nobody else with any kind of mercy. Uh, certainly when he's meeting a former lover in hell and it's been 10,000 years and he still does not forgive her and is going to keep her trapped there for having wronged him. I was a little bit surprised to see John D. treated with so much mercy by Dream here. Yeah, it was really strange to see, and I don't honestly know how I feel about it, and I don't know if, like, if I were Dream, whether I could be as kind of merciful as Dream is able to be. But I think part of it is that, you know, we're led to see how damaged John D is, and that he, he legitimately does have a lot of mental health issues, and so while there are many actions that are his fault – He's not necessarily culpable for the mental state to fully even understand these things. And so I, I don't know, because part of me also feels like, well, but it's also dream being callous towards the effect that 
he and his powers, like having this ruby at all to begin with, unleashed on everyone else. And he never fully has come to grips yet that we've seen with the damage that his absence had. He was very angry and he was aware of the, the, the damage that his absence had on the world, but he never really seems to try to rectify it to any of the many people who we saw in the first couple issues who were negatively affected by this. So uh, it, it leaves me with very kind of mixed feelings towards Dream as well as John D. I do like that we do get to have a beat where John D again is uh, scratching his butt, um, which is a recurring <laughs> motif because we've seen that at least once more, but maybe twice and we just hadn't called it out. But uh, I don't know, Glenn, what do you think about Dream's decision here, though? It's certainly interesting in a, in a number of ways. One thing that I was thinking about trying to work through my surprise here is was was going actually back to Julius Caesar, who famously himself was merciful or or clement as uh, the Latin writers used to call him. And this is something that was held up as being foolish, this idea that he would forgive people who fought against him so long as they promised not to do it again. And it was exactly those people who later uh, assassinated him. And when his nephew, who later becomes Augustus, has is faced with similar situations. He learned from Caesar's example, uh, or Caesar's mistake, I should say, and was not merciful. And so I wondered here, you know, not thinking too much about what I know of what's to come, I was wondering if we're getting a parallel here between Dream and Caesar, in which this decision is actually going to come back to, to haunt him in some way. Certainly, if this was a fresh story, if we were reading this issue by issue, that's the the question that I would have, and I would be thinking of that almost as a kind of uh, as a kind of tease. Yeah, no, I think that that you know is 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 John D now going to be in the rogues gallery that Dream has, in which once again he'll get out from Arkham, and because he knows the Dream lines a little bit, he'll be able to find his way in again. So I, it, it's an interesting kind of. Interesting kind of setup, but it's, uh, I think it's, it's good to kind of keep some ambivalence towards how we feel even about our protagonist at this point. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And I, I do wonder here, you know, as you suggest, feeling some, you know, Dream is feeling some culpability in some way. And in particular, uh, there's something in this scene where that suggests that he actually feels really foolish for having made the ruby in the first place. He says he, he actually forgot how much power he had invested it with. And how much of himself he was actually missing. And so it really is only now that he feels fully himself again. And I wonder if perhaps he's feeling like that was not just a dumb decision because it sort of took something of himself and, and externalized it, but because it also created his own power as a tool that anyone could pick up and use. And so I wonder if that's perhaps part of why he is being merciful here with D and that he feels that he's at least partially responsible for, for this. Yeah, Glenn, I think that's a good point because I think we saw in some of the conversations with D last issue even, Dream is talking about that the power itself is perhaps corrupting D, that he doesn't – it's so powerful and he doesn't know how to wield it. And it's not necessarily that the, the ruby has a mind of its own, but uh, still th- – the damage that it did with prolonged exposure that D had to it in some ways – you know, that is indirectly, at least, if not more so, the, the damage that was wrought is actually Dream's fault. And, you know, maybe just as much as John D's in some way. And I suppose that we would be remiss if we miss the opportunity to actually take seriously the Gollum and the ring, the one ring of Sauron parallels here. We, we have used them as, as jokes from time to time. But uh, in fact, this is exactly the effect that the one ring has on people in the Lord of the Rings. And my favorite line from the Lord of the Rings is when Gandalf explains that, of course, we have to treat Gollum with pity that he is a victim of this thing uh, as much as, uh, as, a, as he is a, a villain. And of course, who are we to decide who lives and dies, right? That's not what our power is. And so we should not take that power into our own hands, right? We should not, uh, we should not try to give ourselves that type of power. And, uh, that might be something that's going on here, not so much specifically with dream, but just some, a parallel that Gaiman is thinking of as a sort of literary illusion and wanting us to think about pity and mercy as being virtues that we should all aspire to. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And unlike, I mean, Gollum wasn't free from the ring until the ring itself burned away in lava. But 
D was perhaps freed the moment that he rendered the ruby asunder himself and thus destroying it and freeing all the power which is in dream again. So the corrupting influence of the the ruby is far easier to dispense with in that way. And we get to see the after effect. So we never got to see what is Gollum like after the ring is destroyed because he's destroyed with the ring. I don't know really anything about what happens to John D in the DC Comics continuity after this moment. Do we see him ag- again? And is he a, a changed person from this experience? Do you know? I believe we see him quite a few times popping up as a villain for Justice League members as well as the Justice League themselves. Um, I think he has different power sources, but uh, he's back to his normal villainy. Uh, nothing so kind of horrific as we've seen depicted here. More kind of your traditional costume stuff but uh and i believe he does make an appearance in uh grant morrison's arkham asylum um which probably came out around the same year which is probably worth doing sometime for the patreon feed yeah that would be exciting i have not read that uh in 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 decades and i i would love to but well it does not sound like d is fully reformed uh by this but but he returns back to his sort of normal uh villainous self and i i guess that's you know back to kind of neutral for him so so that that's something well well dream does return him to arkham asylum and there scarecrow is waiting to greet d as he said he would be and and scarecrow also quotes christopher marlowe's play Faust. There's a there's a lot of Elizabethan drama in this issue, and Dream gives D and Scarecrow the gift of a solid night's sleep, something that never happens in Arkham, which is just a place of terror and and horror. Uh, and indeed, Dream is going to do this for all of humanity. And the line is this: "I have a castle to rebuild, a world to reclaim, but tonight, at least, tonight, humanity will sleep in peace." And here we get our final check-in with regular people, and we see them sleeping, sleeping quite deeply. And and the last passage of this story, really of this story arc, though we do still have one issue to go, uh, the last passage is, Silence washes like a river over Arkham. No sounds of screaming, no sobbing, no noises of pain or madness, just peace. The only noise is the gentle, even cadence of people asleep. In, out, in, out. Listen. You can hear it. Uh, great ring composition there. Beautiful, beautiful bit of prose and calling back to the beginning. Just love this issue. Yeah, I really love the way this issue ends. Um, in particular, calling back to we've got Nan Fowler who is asleep on her desk. She is breathing slowly, deeply. And the art here is, is, is wonderful of her in which she seems exhausted, but also at peace yet still clutching that uh, microphone at the 911 call center. But uh, yeah, I don't know if you can really get good sleep there. Like my, my neck hurts just from, from looking at that image. She's (laughs) going to wake up cursing dream, I think, but you know, he meant well, I guess. Well, and hopefully she's got, you know, a couple days off after this and not that she's got another shift starting in a few hours. Yeah. Right. Hopefully she's, she's uh, clocked some overtime and earned some, some extra time off. Well, uh, I think it's time now to move into our our end of issue discussions of the cover art, the the, the title, and and pick our favorite panels. So, Brent, I'm going to kick the cover art question to you first because I am not really sure what to make of the the Dave McKean cover for this issue. The central image is a door with a round knob, but it looks like part of the door has fallen apart, and so behind it we can see uh, a naked person reaching for the door from the other side. And uh, the side panels are also all hands in various poses. It's a cool image, but I. Don't don't know what to make of it i think that this is supposed to be i think that the hands reaching around are, are dream subtly manipulating everything else that we're seeing and i think that the hand and the doorknob and the torso are all reflectant of the what's occurring in the dreamlands where you've got kind of you know walls that are disappearing and doors that lead places but you may already be there and people who are not quite who they really are. And so I, this reminds me of when D first shows up in the dreamlands and is Julius Caesar in a way. And it doesn't appear to look like anyone else. And it's, it's dream then subtly with the hands on the sides, manipulating the situation very subtly and, you know, kind of almost as if he's conducting a symphony here to get out the end of where he needs things to be to to pull the sound out to make the fury disappear 
I might be going too far with the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the I, metaphor. Well, I like it. I think I like I like this reading quite a bit, and and something with the you know the idea of these hands sort of just all reaching for doors. We've got the emphasis on the doorknobs and the locks as well, and yeah, the idea that, of seeing dreams right as uh, really kind of a, a series of doors, and that because dream knows the layout of his kingdom. He knows how to manipulate these doors such that he can get D exactly where he wants him to be in order to to best him in this combat. I, I think that's a great reading. So title-wise, Sound and Fury, uh, did it signify anything or <laughs> <laughs> Right. As you as you have been hinting at Brent, this is a a famous line from Macbeth. It's uh from what is probably the most famous of Macbeth's monologue. It's it's certainly the one that Star Trek loves the most. I'm just gonna read the whole speech and then we can talk about how it applies to our present story. And this is Act Five, Scene Five. Macbeth has just learned that his wife, Lady Macbeth, is dead. He says, She would have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And I think we can see pretty clear that that Gaiman is and has been working with these themes throughout the story so far. And he's going to continue to do that, though we won't spoil it. But the central idea here is that our lives are meaningless. Our personal stories are tales told by an idiot and they signify nothing. And this is a pretty bleak view of the universe, uh, really, of life and of people, frankly. Uh, I would say that it's actually some of the best cosmic horror writing ever written three centuries before that genre was even invented. (laughs) This time on Elder Sign. Yes, right. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It is a very, it is is a line that is often, uh, can be read in a very dark way. Um, It also can be a very freeing thing in some ways too. But whenever I hear it, I always think of um, the Canadian show Slings and Arrows, in which uh, their new corporate sponsor at one point gets up, uh, receives some like marketing award someone does or something and says, Shakespeare said that, Sound and fury signifying nothing. Uh, but we don't believe that at like Lens Trex International or whatever. <laughs> yes. Slings and Arrows is an amazing show. I wish it had run for more than three seasons. Uh, it is, it's, uh, absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Well, I think this is a, I think this is another thing that we should actually, uh, perhaps consider for doing a Patreon episode at some point in the future. But, uh, I, I think that's really everything that we need to say about the title is to just let Shakespeare speak for yeah. himself. So uh, I think it's time to pick our favorite panels. And uh, Brent, it's your turn to go first. You know, none grabbed me the way some have in prior issues. Um, I like the issue as a, as a whole, but there were bits here and there. But I think I have to go with on page six at the bottom uh, when Dream has put on his helm and has gotten up from the booth to leave the diner. And he says, and you shall not do it here because he's heading off to the dreamlands. And we have like the thing where his trench coat slash cloak thing has like the sleeper heads in it. And then there's a weird kind of flame thing going off his coat. And I don't know if it's supposed to be showing how he's injured or I'm not sure. But what I like about this is he's doing this weird kind of fallback stutter step thing. (laughs) Yeah. And I just, I don't legitimately, I don't know what he's doing here. And I love it because I love it. If the idea of like, he's kind of falling back and then, you know, going to drift somewhere else. Or if it's, no, no, he's saying like, boogaboo, and like trying to scare D because he's put on his mask and you should take it seriously. So I'm going to wave my arms around. I can't quite tell. Uh, but Glenn, what's your favorite panel? For me there, I was nervous because last time I had picked what was also your favorite panel. I thought it was going to happen to me this time, but that did not happen though. We have both been drawn to, uh, Dream's helmet. Uh, my favorite panel is at the bottom of page 10 where we get the helmed Dream in the Roman toga. This is as the, the, as D's Julius Caesar Dream is beginning to morph. I have a classics degree. I'm a, a late Roman historian. I love Roman. I love Sandman. This is just 
cool looking to me. I want to see Dream in a toga. Also, I think this is probably going to be my next Halloween costume or next con, whichever comes first. Yeah, and I love that image. Uh, It was definitely in my runners up. I particularly like the fact that at this point, when we see the helmets seeming to replace the the three fates, they don't appear to have arms anymore. So it almost looks to me as if they're togas and helmets that are, are, are scarecrows, that they're in a field stuffed with hay and like being held up by um, planks of wood. And they're somehow just talking because it's dream logic so why not yeah these are some post-apocalyptic scarecrows for sure right put a sort of a gas mask on a scarecrow uh just to terrify people not crows yeah no it would the crows would probably like it because it'd be like well this is the reason why we form murders to hang out (laughs) right but no this would be a good way to keep out uh, neighboring kids so it'd work real well on the television show smallville (laughs) yes absolutely well i think now that we are endorsing our second tv show of this segment uh, i think it's time to to bid farewell so that is going to do it for this episode i'm glenn mcdormand and i'm brent helt you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com head on over to the clay temple forums let us know what you thought of sound and fury and come let us know what you thought of dreams to decision here to to have mercy uh to take pity on john d would you have done something different do, are you finding dream a sympathetic character in this issue or or not have you been finding dream a sympathetic character the whole story we'd love to talk about this and next issue issue number eight the sound of her wings uh, which is a fan favorite um, and has the first appearance of maybe the most well-known character in all of the Sandman series, more so than Dream himself. I'm very excited for this one. It's going to be so much fun. But until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>